Welcome to this special edition of the 2011 EMS Authors Podcast Series. My name is Bill Kimball. Today we've recorded the audio from a recent webinar hosted by Christine Emerton, Executive Acquisitions Editor for JB Learning, and involving the authors of the new AEMT textbook, Rhonda Beck and Stephen Rahm. Um, welcome, everybody, to the Jones and Bartlett Learning uh, webinar series on our new AEMT program. And uh, we recognize that our customers have a lot of questions about the transition to the course materials based on the EMS education standards and the new scope of practice for each level. Um, so we thought a webinar series like this with some of the lead authors um, who helped us develop the program materials uh, would be a great opportunity to share information um, with some folks about the transition, about the new AEMT level itself, and then also about um, our course materials uh, in particular. Uh, my name is Christine Emerton, and I'm the EMS editor here at Jones and Bartlett. And I'm extremely pleased to introduce our two presenters today, Rhonda Beck and Steve Rahm. Um, Rhonda is the lead author on the new Advanced Emergency Care and Transportation of the Sick and Injured textbook, uh, our AEMT text. And she also wrote the first edition of this book when the, back when the level was, uh, was called EMT Intermediate. And Rhonda has been a field provider and an educator in Georgia for many years. And the quality of the content in our AEMT textbook certainly reflects her experience and her expertise. Uh, the reviewers who worked with us on the manuscript uh, commented over and over again on the depth of her street wisdom, um, but they also noted how clearly Rhonda is able to explain very complex concepts, um, a skill that you know she certainly um, clearly developed over years of educating EMS providers. Uh, Steve Rahm, uh, also an accomplished field provider and educator um, in the lovely state of Texas. Uh, Steve has been an author with Jones and Barlett Learning for, um, for many years, uh, authoring a number of case study texts and preparation tools for national certification. He is also notably the author of most of our fantastic test banks. Uh, we receive testimonials all the time uh, from students on the resources that Steve has authored, crediting him uh, with their success on the National Registry exam. So needless to say, we're delighted to have both Rhonda and Steve on our author team and available to speak to um, all you folks today. So before I turn it over to Rhonda, I just wanted to mention um, quickly, uh, for those of you who are transitioning to the AEMT level, uh, or if your state is offering this level for the first time, I just wanted to recommend that you visit uh, the NASEMSO, the state training officials website, and the URL is on the screen now. Um, you'll find a number of um, pretty useful tools there um, that will help you in this transition. Um, namely, uh, NASEMSO created a document that they call the Gap Analysis. So they actually had teams of folks compare the national standard curriculum to um, the EMS education standards, um, both cognitive and skills. And they created documents for all four levels that sort of spell out what they consider to be new content uh, in both of those areas. Um, so that's a pretty helpful document. We also, Jones and Bartlett, um, took that document and correlated it to all of our new textbooks. So we have that document available um, for, for the AEMT program. Um, so you know, feel free to reach out to one of us or to your sales uh, representative, and, and we'll get you a copy of that. Uh, I also wanted to share the matrix that NASEMSO has posted to their site um, regarding the transition 
to the new national registry exams. Um, if you're in a state that uses the registry, um, this is um, certainly very relevant information. Um, so they've actually been working with the registry to determine when the new exams that reflect the EMS education standards content will go live. So um, this isn't, as far as I know, um, written in stone. This has been consistent for you know the last eight months or so. Um, so you'll see that the AEMT exam, uh, they are planning to have that one be the first one to go live, um, supposedly this um, sometime this summer. So now is the time to start teaching from our AEMT materials. So um, I will turn this over to Rhonda now. Hi, thank you, Christine. My name is Rhonda Beck, and as you said, um, I did the first edition of the EMT Intermediate that was written to both the 85 and 99 standards, um, which was the only book that was written to both levels, and then again, the advanced EMT. Um, we're really excited about the new curriculum and about the new program and what all the advanced EMTs will be able to do. One of the things that's really exciting to me is I actually do a lot of the photos for these books. Uh, some of my photos have been used in other publications such as the Caroline Paramedic book and several of the others. But uh, this one I actually did the cover for and my son is the patient uh, who is currently in the Army serving in Afghanistan, so I'm really excited about that, but he's on the cover along with some friends of mine. Um, but like I said, this is, uh, it's been a long, long, drawn-out process, but uh, I think everyone will be pleased with the results. Next. There are several new chapters that have been added uh, from the EMT Intermediate, and the first one is the medical overview. There's a medical as well as a trauma overview. The medical is Chapter 13, and each of the chapters start out with uh, an A&P section, a pathophysiology, and then you have the bulk of the material as well as the patient assessment that includes the scene survey, the primary, the history, the secondary assessment, and so forth, and then emergency care along with the skill drills. So with the medical assessment, we have the assessment and management of general medical complaints, the transport decision, you know, where do we need to transport, how do we need to transport these patients? Is this a rapid transport? Is this a something that's, um, you know, um, not a serious condition, it's not an emergency, we can take our time and get a little bit more history. And then destination decisions, the big thing here being that the closest facility is not always the most appropriate. When we're dealing with a patient that has severe trauma, potential stroke, cardiovascular issues, these patients need to be transported to the closest, most appropriate facility, so we address those. Um, chapter 13 also covers an awareness of patients who may have infectious diseases. How do we protect ourselves as rescuers, as uh, AEMTs? And then assessment and management of those patients who have infectious diseases who may be infected with a blood-borne pathogen. Um, Antibiotic-resistant infections, of course, MRSA being the big one now, and current infectious diseases that are prevalent in the community. Next. The trauma overview chapter, which is chapter 23, 
covers the pathophysiology assessment and management of the trauma patient. We also cover trauma scoring, rapid transport, and again, the destination decisions. What is the most appropriate facility for this particular patient, and how are we going to transport them? What is our transport mode? Is this emergency or non-emergency? We also need to recognize and manage multi-system trauma. Uh, so we talk about the pathophysiology assessment and management of multi-system trauma and blast injuries in this chapter. Uh, one of the big things being occult injuries, those things that we don't readily see. Very easy to see a broken bone sticking out of the skin, but what about those injuries that we don't see, those things involving uh, very vascular organs within the abdominal cavity, maybe brain trauma, whatever the situation may be, but that hasn't manifested itself to the point that we have obvious signs and symptoms. So the big thing here is remembering with the trauma overview, having a high index of suspicion, looking at the vehicle, if it's a, a motor vehicle accident, you know, um, what type of damage is done to the vehicle, those things that would lead us to have a high index of suspicion for certain injuries. You know, was the patient wearing a, a seat belt? Was there airbag deployment? Where was the intrusion? You know, where was the damage to the vehicle? So all of these things are addressed in Chapter 23. Next. Lifespan development is another new chapter. This is Chapter 6, and it applies fundamental knowledge of lifespan development to patient assessment and management, and this covers from uh, birth up until death. So we go through all of the different lifespans, discussing various conditions that we may come in contact with with each of these patients. Now, obviously, we still have those chapters, such as neonatal, we have, uh, of course, obstetrics where we go into delivery of babies, the neonatal chapter, pediatrics, then on through up to the geriatric chapter. But this one is just basically an overview from birth to death and what we might encounter with these specific patients. Medical terminology, which previously was a chapter in itself, is now an appendix. So it's still included, it's still incorporated throughout the text, but instead of being an actual chapter, it's an appendix at the end of the book. So uh, when you're looking through the table of contents, note that that is still there. It's just now been moved into an appendix instead of a chapter at the beginning of the text. Next. Okay, we also have several chapters that have been renamed or have had various sections added to them. First of all is urologic emergencies. This was previously not included and has been added to gastrointestinal emergencies. So this is going to be in chapter 17. Now we're going to 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 assist patients. You know, teaching the students when it's appropriate uh, or where it's appropriate to take blood pressures, not to use an extremity that has a, a dialysis fistula or a shun in it. Complications related to the renal dialysis, to urinary catheter management, and then things such as kidney stones, which are very common and very painful. So how do we manage these patients? How do we recognize what's going on and what's the appropriate transport and management? Hematologic emergencies has been added to endocrine emergencies. So now along with diabetic issues, we also have those things such as sickle cell crisis, clotting disorders, um, these were previously not in the EMTI, but were part of the paramedic curriculum. Now, 
These have been added into the AMT to make it uh, a little more well-rounded. And these are patients that we, you know, are very likely to come in contact with. And it's very important to know uh, how to recognize problems and proper management. The uh, Chapter 19, which previously was called allergic reaction, is now immunologic emergencies. Still addresses the same things, just a different name. So this is all part of the curriculum changes. Next. As far as medications that may be administered on an AMT level, the only thing that, that basically has been removed are those medications that were part of the I-99 curriculum for cardiovascular, things such as the epinephrine, atropine, sodium bicarb, the, the things that were given in cardiovascular emergencies and cardiac arrest. Now we have albuterol that can actually be administered, can be taken out of the drug box, administered by a nebulizer, um, instead of the AEMT just being allowed to assist the patient with their own medication. Aspirin is another one. Previously, uh, the EMT could, could actually give aspirin um, that were prescribed to the patient, as well as nitroglycerin and an EpiPen. These things now can be utilized by pulling them out of a drug box and actually administering them to the patient as part of the AEMT um, standard of care. D50, which has pre was previously uh, part of the EMT scope of practice, is also included. And glucagon is another new addition on the AEMT level. Oxygen has always been there, but nitrous oxide is another that nitrous oxide is actually the only thing for as far as an analgesic for pain relief and it it goes back to whether or not it's carried by the individual service so ultimately the AEMT is going to have to follow local protocols and administer these medications based on what their service carries and what their medical director will allow however all of these things are now included in the scope of practice including the um, normal fluids that we would give on uh, as routine care. Next. Okay, CPAP is another of the big things that's been added. This is probably one of the big advancements is the uh, non-invasive means of giving ventilatory support for patients who are in respiratory distress. And even on a paramedic level, we've gone more to using the CPAP as opposed to just routinely uh, doing rapid sequence intubation and, and creating an airway for this patient. So we've seen a lot of advancements with CPAP, and this is now covered in Chapter 10 in the AEMT for airway management. It is something that is within the AEMT scope of practice. Okay, next. And finally, the things that uh, have been removed, intubation, which all of these things were on the I-99 level, cardiac monitoring, the rhythm recognition, manual defibrillation, synchronized cardioversion, transcutaneous pacing, and then those medications that I was talking about, the atropine, the bicarb, uh, along with the needle thoracostomy. Obviously, the AED, AED is still included within the AEMT scope of practice. Um, and the book also is up to date with the new standards that were released by American Heart back in October. So everything is, is well within the uh, current scope of practice.
think that's um, I think that's pretty much everything as far as the book. So, Steve. Okay. Uh, sweet for Alicia to hand the control over to me. There we go. Hope everybody is uh, having a good day today. I um, also appreciate uh, you folks taking time out of your busy schedules to uh, allow us to uh, to present this material to you and and uh, and to discuss uh, the really good things that uh, that we've done. Uh, I do want to just take a moment to uh, to let uh, everybody know what a pleasure it's been to work with uh, not only JB Learning but with Rhonda as well. I worked with her on the uh, the first edition intermediate text and, and wrote the test bank that accompanied that. Um, also did the uh, the test bank for the advanced EMT. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, what uh, what I'm basically going to focus on here is is test bank development, test item development, uh, the process that we go through to make sure that uh, that the uh, the the teaching and assessment tools that uh, that you folks get are high quality and uh, that uh, that are going to work for you. Um, you already saw my uh, my bio up on the screen, um, but I can tell you that uh, when it comes to, to writing test items, uh, I've found the vast majority of instructors and coordinators cringe at it, um, whereas I, I actually thrive on it. I, I love to sit there and write a good thought-provoking uh, test question. Um, a simple test item can take me usually between 10 and 15 minutes, where the, the higher-level questions can take upwards of sometimes an hour. And as uh, as we get into this presentation, you'll see why it can be a, a pretty lengthy process. So it's it's not simply a matter of me writing questions and they get copy edited and they get put on a CD and distributed to you. There is a uh, a, a process that we do have in place to make sure that these questions are validated and that uh, and that they do not uh, contradict um, the current standard of care. So uh, the. The benefits of, an, of a published uh, developer, a publisher developed instructor test bank, first and foremost, I think you would all agree that it allows you, the instructor, the coordinator, to focus your time on educating your students without having the burden of creating tests. Now, some of you might like creating tests, and that's great, um, but we provide you with a bulk of test items that you can use. Um, you know, throughout uh, throughout your program, they're page referenced uh, right back to the uh, advanced EMT test book um, uh, or textbook rather. They allow for you know standardized exam items that have been reviewed and validated by experts in the field from all over the country, and not just uh, not just educators, but street medics as well, who know what's going on in the field um, and are able to apply those critical concepts that are presented in the textbook. And it allows the coordinator or the instructor to reference the student back to a page or several pages in some cases in the textbook uh, when they're trying to understand why they missed a particular item um, to make sure that they understand, okay, well, okay, now I know why my D was the correct answer and why A wasn't. Uh, because sometimes, you know, those test questions can be, uh, can be written at the point where the, the distractors do their job and they distract the student away from the correct answer. Um, or in some cases, it's because a student simply didn't know the information or wasn't as familiar with it as they as they could have been, and uh, that will allow you to uh, to just simply direct them to a, a page number uh, right back in the book. There are two types of test items that we write uh, and we put in the test bank, um, and you're going to see usually a mix of these pretty much on any certification exam you take. There's going to be a certain number of 
items that are what we call general knowledge or recall, you know, define, describe those types of, uh, of items. Um, I'll give you an example, although you, you'll likely not see a, a type of question like this on, the, on an advanced level exam, but how many bones are in the human body? It's a simple recall item. Um, any textbook that you look in, you're going to find that it's 206 bones. So uh, we have a certain number of, of general knowledge uh, just, to, just to test how well the student understands terminology and, and, and certain key concepts. Those are the ones that usually take me about 10 or 15 minutes to write a piece. Whereas the critical thinking or the scenario-based items, uh, for those of you familiar with Bloom's uh, taxonomy of learning, those are usually your, your Bloom level four, five, and six that require pretty much all of the higher thought processes, synthesis, analysis, problem solving, critical thinking, um, that are written in a, in a format that's very similar to what, uh, what your students are going to encounter on state or national certification exams. Uh, those types of questions assess the students' abilities to apply very concept, uh, complex concepts that are learned in the classroom, not necessarily on a given book page, uh, but many of the questions are, are written to assess uh, knowledge of the concept of, a, of an entire chapter, or in some cases, more than one chapter. Either way, they're always page referenced back to the appropriate pages in the book. And as I said earlier, they are written in a manner that's similar uh, to what's going to be encountered on state and national certification exams. Not necessarily the content. I obviously would be foolish to, to try to emulate the registry exam, um, but I just kind of reflect back on the, the style and the construction of the question that I recall when I took the exam and, uh, and kind of follow a, a, similar, uh, a similar format. So those are, those are the two types of, uh, of questions with regard to um, you know, degree of difficulty. Let's discuss uh, what, what makes a, a test item valid. In other words, what, what are the attributes of a valid test item? First and foremost, when I sit down to draft a test item, the first question I ask myself is, what do I want to assess with regard to content? What do I want to assess? And then I'll usually have a list of you know, critical concepts throughout each of the, the chapters. And then the next thing I ask myself is, how do I want to assess it? Do I want to assess it with a, a lower level knowledge question, or do I want to assess it with a, uh, you know, a higher level knowledge, a critical thinking type question? So after I've established that, I write a, a STEM, which is the, the question itself, to present the student with a clear problem. It, it, has to be, it has to be readable. The student has to be able to understand what I'm asking them. I can't put in a lot of extraneous information uh, that the students have to sift through just to, to get to the meaning of, of what the problem is. So the, the problem has to be very clear. And of course, it has to have one and only one correct answer. Now, with regard to, to correct answers, correct answers can be in one of two forms. They can be absolute correct answers, in which case, it doesn't matter what EMS textbook you look in, and again, that goes back to the how many bones are in the human body. You're going to find that across the board, word for word. Um, so generally in cases like that, uh, page references, although we page reference every test item, are not as critical uh, because that's pretty much what I would consider to be institutional knowledge versus the alternative best response or best answer. Uh, and those are usually the, the questions where you see of the following which is most correct. Or if it's uh, in a scenario type format where I'm, uh, 
or I'm asking, uh, you know, uh, I, pre I present a problem, a scenario, an injured or ill patient, and provide them with a list of treatments or interventions, which do they think is the most appropriate to perform based on the, the patient's clinical presentation? Uh, when, a, when, a good, uh, when a good test item is written, it should be written in a manner where the student, or at least the vast majority of the students, should be able to answer the question without looking at the options. And that's one of the things that I uh, impart to my students when they're taking an exam and, and kind of giving them some test-taking tips, is that if they physically have to put their hand over the options, uh, when they're reading the stem of the question, uh, that's going to be very beneficial for them for a number of different reasons. Number one, if they read the question and they're already looking at the options and they're reading the question and referring to the options and then kind of flip-flopping back and forth, by the time they read that question, they're not going to have a true understanding of what that question is asking. So what I ask them to do or, or challenge them to do is cover up the, uh, cover up the options. Read the, read the question, make sure you understand it. If you can understand it after reading it one time, then don't read it again. If it takes you a couple of times, then, then that's fine. Then after you read and have understood the stem of the question, then answer it to yourself. Uh, if you can answer it to yourself uh, confidently, then you're likely going to get the answer correct because the next step is to simply reveal the options and pick the one that comes closest to what you thought it was. Sometimes it's spot on, but in many cases, it's, it's the closest response to what you answered in your mind. My opinion about a, a good test item is that a good test item is not in the correct answer. It's in the distractors because that's when I draft the test item, that's the first option that I put in as a correct answer because that's the easiest one to put in. Then I build the distractors around the correct answer. The distractors have to have some degree of, of plausibility um, to the point where they they should be attractive to students with less than minimal knowledge of the material um, to be able to draw them away from the correct answer. That's not to be confused with a trick question. It's simply a, a valid method of assessing your student's level of knowledge of that uh, of that given content. So when I say plausibility, uh, I'm referring to uh, yes, the, the distractors do tie in with the, the scenario. Um, certain distractors, you could understand why the student might have picked that over the correct answer um, and may not require as much remediation as somebody who picks one of the less sophisticated distractors. And I'll give you an example of a, of a distractor that would be totally non-plausible. Say I were to present you with a male patient with abdominal pain, and I present you with signs and symptoms and vital signs and some past medical history, and what the question is asking is what you think is wrong with the patient or what do you think the patient's primary problem is. Well, if this was a male patient and one of the distractors was ectopic pregnancy, well, you can clearly see where that, that's not plausible because it's not possible. Uh, so... Uh, Every, every distractor has to have some degree of plausibility. They can't be off the wall. They can't be made up. I mean, that's, that's completely taboo in item writing is to, to make up a medical term because students are going to be flabbergasted. They're going to think, oh, I've never heard that. I was, I was never taught that. And that's, um, that's, uh, that's really putting them behind the, uh, the eight ball with regard to assessing their, their, true, uh, their true abilities and their, their true knowledge. 
I avoid uh, options that involve all of the above or none of the above. And the reason why is because most of the time in, in tests that I've seen written by others, they're usually the correct response. And if that's the case, then you can have students with very serious uh, knowledge deficiencies to answer the items correctly, and they, they usually arrive at the item by process of elimination. So you're not going to see any all of the above or none of the above on any of the, the test banks that I write for all of our core uh, for all of our core textbooks. You will all, you will not see any uh, what we call multiple multiples. Those are the uh, you know A is one two and three, B is one four and five. That's simply nothing more than a series of true and false questions, and and I find that they they tend to uh, uh, to confuse the student more than they do assess knowledge. Uh, the student may answer it correctly, but they spent so much time trying to cipher, you know, the question itself that uh, a lot of times they get frustrated, and uh, that's one thing that we don't want them to do uh, when they're taking an exam. So these are two particular types of items that I do not uh, I do not write, uh, regardless of uh, of what type of test I'm writing, because I I really don't think that they um, that they uh, they assess a student's knowledge the way they should. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh, the test item writing process. One of the the most common questions that is forwarded to me through through Jones and Bartlett is, uh, are your test items valid? Uh, people have different ideas and different definitions of the term test validity. Um, many people know what a test item or a valid test item is. Other people do not. Uh, they just want to know if the test is valid. So usually I will usually get in contact with that person personally and, and try to ascertain exactly what they mean by valid, what, what their definition of valid is. And there are several different types of validity that I like to discuss. Face validity. I can establish face validity simply by writing an item that presents a clear problem and has one correct answer. So at literal face value, the item has one correct answer. But it can't stop there we have to establish content validity, and that's done by a process of review. Um, the draft item is sent out, um, it's, it's submitted to Jones and Bartlett, then it's submitted to, uh, to reviewers, educators, and clinicians to ensure medical accuracy, relevance, to make sure that uh, the test item has avoided any uh, regional or geographic bias, that um, appropriate medical terminology was used, that uh, complex lay terminology was avoided. Uh, the student should not have to, uh, to read a question that has complex lay terminology, um, and they may miss the question simply because they didn't understand a, a, a common word or what some people would be a common, consider a common word, which is actually you know, lay, you know, high-level terminology like words superfluous. I like that word. I like the way it rolls off the tongue, but it does nothing on a test bank. It does nothing on a test item. So we have a process in place to ensure that all of the reviewers agree that the content is relevant, it's accurate, the distractors are plausible, and that the key correct response is indeed the correct answer. That's, that's what we can establish on our end. So the product that you get has however many items are in the test bank have face validity and they have content validity. And, and again, they're not just reviewed by educators, they're reviewed by clinicians, they're reviewed by practitioners. 
Um, some of them are reviewed by, of course, we have a medical editor that reviews them as well, and our medical editor happens to be a physician and a paramedic. So, um, you know, he sees it from both ends and, uh, and, uh, and really helps to further that process. Another question that uh, that we commonly get asked is, have our have our exams demonstrated predictive validity? Uh, anecdotally, I can tell you yes. And as Christine had indicated earlier, we do get numerous testimonials from users that that have used our test banks and used other other uh, test prep tools, and and have said that hey, you know, the majority of our students who scored well on on your on your JB learning exams were successful on their their certification exam, oftentimes on the first attempt, which Obviously, we do like to hear. So, I can only you know give you anecdotal uh, evidence of that, but officially the answer is no. Predictive validity is something that can only be established on your end by administering the same exam numerous times to different classes, and then taking that data, you know, compiling it, collecting it, and then comparing it to the students' scores on the uh, on the certification exam. So. It, Typically, to, to determine if, if a particular item or a particular test has predictive validity, you're looking at at least administering that same exam three times to three different classes and then comparing that data to the students' uh, scores on their, uh, their certification exams. And that's something that uh, we'll discuss here uh, in just a few minutes on how you can actually do that with a, uh, a test prep tool that, uh, that is uh, in construction for the, uh, the advanced DMT. So the official answer is no. The unofficial answer is yes. As far as exam reliability, a reliable exam is one that is consistently measuring what it uh, is intended to measure over an extended period of time. You know, and you'll find that regardless of whether it's a state certification exam or a national certification exam, test items are constantly being reevaluated. Uh, um, item analysis is being conducted to make sure that that, that item is consistently testing what, it, what the author meant for it to assess, which means that it's given numerous times to different classes and it consistently yields the same or similar results. And again, we have you know, numerous testimonials from users of, uh, of our, uh, our test banks that would indicate that our tests are indeed reliable, that they are, uh, they are consistently measuring what they're supposed to measure. And uh, that, that's a, a, an absolute critical attribute of, of any test item is it, it must be reliable. Can I customize the test bank? Absolutely. The test bank uh, is, is simply provided to you. It's, it's not just a bunch of questions that are thrown together and, and you know, fed to you to, where you have to go through and say, well, I, I have to fix this, I have to fix that, I have to fix this. You, you certainly have the, the, the option and the right to do that. If you find an item that in your professional opinion, your experience does not assess what you want it to assess, then you have the ability to edit that item and save it in the test bank program once you've installed it onto your computer. Uh, of course, you can't you know, save it back to the disk, but you can always customize the test bank. You can add more items. Um, you can add more distractors. Um, there are some people that, that feel that five, you know, that, that five options are better than four. You have the option of doing that as well. And certainly if you find an item that you believe has been incorrectly keyed or that uh, is contradicted in the book or you just think it's an overall bad item, then I would highly encourage you to please contact Jones and Bartlett Learning because they'll forward 
your concerns directly to me, and I prefer to uh, to contact you directly to uh, you know to resolve the problem. Um, that's how we consistently make these test banks better and better and better is the user feedback that we get from uh, from good people such as yourselves who are using them. So yes, please feel free to customize the test bank. Um, the one caveat that I want to throw in there is that when you get a test bank delivered to you when you adopt a textbook, uh, the author of that test bank, that being me, I have to defend every question that I write. I have to be able to do that as the author. If you go in there and you change one of those test items, if you change a distractor or if you change anything in the stem or if you change a correct answer, for that particular item, that onus then shifts to you to defend that test item because it has been changed, keeping in mind that when the test bank comes to you, it's, it has face validity, it has content validity, it's been reviewed. So unless you change a test item, if you have any concern about it, um, then forward it to me and then, uh, and then we'll work it out. And if, uh, if it is indeed a flawed question, it will, uh, it will get fixed. The last part of what I'd like to discuss is what we have uh, a work in progress I'll be starting uh, on here within the next week. Um, and that's going to be uh, what we call Navigate Test Prep AMT Success. <clears throat> right now um, we have a series of modules that are out there that are called JB Test Prep. Um, I wrote the, uh, the items for all of those. I didn't build the platform, but I wrote all the, uh, the items. It's an online certification test prep tool. Uh, gives the students the options of taking either uh, practice exams in which they can focus on one or more subjects. They can you know, say, I want to take a, a practice exam on airway management, or I want to take a practice exam on cardiology, and they can plug in the number of items that they want. And uh, as soon as they answer that question, immediate feedback is given. They're told what the correct answer is and what they chose, and it's followed by a, a, a fairly detailed rationale explaining not only why the correct answer was correct, but why the distractors were incorrect. The Navigate Test Prep AEMT Success is written in a manner to where it really doesn't matter what textbook you use because I use the, the National Registry's Practice Analysis and the National EMS Education Blueprint to draft those items. So uh, obviously you're going to be able to find the answer in the, uh, the AEMT text for, uh, for Jones and Bartlett, but it's more, used, uh, more designed to be used regardless of what textbook you use. So students can take practice uh, exams um, for, for the life of, of, the, uh, of the time that they have access to it. And I believe that's, uh, I believe that's 18 months. Uh, they can take an unlimited number of exams. And they can also take an unlimited number of final exams as well. With a final exam, if they click that as an option, then it's randomly going to generate a 150-item exam. As soon as that first item appears on the screen, they're, they're going to see a timer in the upper right-hand corner that's going to start counting upwards. That, that uh, timer is not designed to cut the student off um, like the registry exam would if the student ran out of time. It's simply there to help the student pace themselves to see you know, how long it's taking them to answer you know, all 150 items as well as on average how many items per minute they're answering. <clears throat> That way, when they, they do get to the, the state or the, the, the national certification exam, uh, you know, they've, they've kind of prepped themselves on their, with regard to timing. Because at the end of the final exam, uh, one, one other thing I want to bring up about the final exam, when they, when they choose their answer, their response, and they click next question, they do not have the ability to click back. 
<clears throat> to go back to that previous question because they're not going to be able to do that on the National Registry exam. So they're going to finish all 150 um, items, and at the very end, then they're going to be presented with their test results. It's going to give them an overall score, and it's going to give them a percentage score of each of the subtest areas. It's also going to give them data with regard to how long it took them to take the exam, as well as how many um, items per minute um, they averaged um, answering. So that's a, that's a really important piece there because you know, it, it will be a nightmare for a student to run out of time on the uh, on the registry exam. Um, you know, when they've may have only answered 50 or 60 items. So uh, I think that's a that's a, a really key feature. And as I said, every test item is followed by a detailed uh, rationale, not not just why the correct answer is correct. I don't simply say A is correct because. I also say B, C, and D were incorrect because. Um, we. Uh, We've gotten some pretty good uh, feedback uh, with all of the uh, the test preps. So as I said, that's uh, that's going to be a work in progress starting here within the next week or so. And um, usually it doesn't take us very long to uh, to get that uh, loaded up onto the platform because we already have the platform in place. It's just a matter of me uh, writing the test items and um, you know getting them reviewed and uh, and validated and then um, and then uh, put online. Uh, with that, um, I will. Um, turn uh, uh, the wheel back over to uh, Christine, and uh, she'll provide you with some uh, additional information, and then I'll be able, uh, more than happy to answer any questions after she's finished. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, I'm sure uh, those of you who are uh, have already made the decision to adopt the AEMT program or are considering it, I'm sure that you're all interested in, in hearing about when um, the student and instructor resources will be available, so we wanted to um, share some uh, ballpark um, times with you. Um, the instructor toolkit uh, CD-ROM, um, we're looking at um, probably a mid to late April um, publication that's um, well in the works now. Um, the instructor test bank, which um, as you know, Steve, ROM developed is, uh, is in production now, and I think probably uh, mid-April, actually, that will be available. Um, the student workbook is at the printer right now. Um, we're looking at a, an April 22 bound book date for the student workbook. And um, again, Steve is already starting to work on the test prep tool for the AEMT program, which um, you know we're looking at um, hopefully fall timeframe to have that available. And I also wanted to mention that we have been um, developing new companion websites for all of our initial training programs, and, and we have done so as well for the AEMT um, program. So the companion website um, is now live. Um, definitely go take a look at that. Uh, it includes a number of resources and activities that will uh, enhance what your students are learning um, in your classroom. And I also wanted to mention the AEMT program is unique in that um, when uh, Rhonda was working with us to sort of map out the content in the textbook, um, you know, we were hearing from many of the reviewers that in their state they had planned to um, continue to teach some of these um, skills that are actually technically outside of the AEMT scope of practice now, but um, because states have some flexibility in, in deciding uh, what skills they allow their providers to perform, we wanted to make some of those additional skills, content for those additional skills available if you happen to be um, in a state that will, um, that will allow some of those additional skills. So within the special privileges section of the AEMT website, 
um, students will have access to those. There are individual PDFs um, focused on, on particular skills. Rhonda, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Basically, it's going to cover all of the I-99 skills that were previously um, included, such as the manual defibrillation, transcutaneous pacing, cardioversion, along with the needle thoracostomy or chest decompression. Um, those are the big ones that are covered. Uh, it's, it's very comprehensive as far as skills. also includes I.O., of the intraosseous infusions, which is part of the AEMT level, but um, some states still have uh, issues as far as what's allowed and what's not. But overall, I think it's very comprehensive. Great. So, those, so again, those are all um, on the Companion website as individual PDFs, so students can download those, print them out, um, you know, available um, as part of your course materials from the Companion website. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Um, I did receive one question um, through the chat while the authors were presenting. I believe this is directed to you, Rhonda, while you were discussing the change in the curriculum, and the question is, why such a radical change for cardiac patients? Actually, it, it's not much of a change from the I-85 curriculum. It's a, a big change from the I-99. The I-99 is more online with the paramedic level, and, you know, we've had a, a big division of states as far as who taught the I-85 and the I-99. So this is actually just more in line with the I-85 with uh, a little more attention to medications that can be given, such as the nitroglycerin, the aspirin, and the nitrous oxide that can actually be administered by the AEMT as opposed to assisting the patient with their own medication. Thank you. Uh, does anybody else have any other questions they'd like to ask, either Rhonda or Steve? I, I do. Um, did did you say that chest decompression is part of the AEMT now? No, it's uh it's part of the old I ninety nine that is no longer part of the AEMT curriculum, but it is included on the online skills for those people who may still teach it in their state as part of their scope of practice. Okay. Okay. Because then, yeah, it's, this is going to be an Oregon is finally going to the the National Registry EMT for the first time in state's history. But we're still offering our Oregon I, which is at or above the I-99. So we're trying to figure out how to incorporate these two together. So we're just trying to get an idea of the differences. So it's more of the I-85 rather than the I-99. The AEMT is more online with the I-85. Okay. Uh, like I said, the, probably the biggest difference is the introduction of more medications that can be given by the AEMT. Um, but like I said, you do have those skills that are above that level that are offered on the website. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Well, we certainly invite everybody to contact Jones and Bartlett directly if any questions come up after the webinar. Uh, we have been recording this session and we'll be making it available on our website, uh, I'd say within the next week or so. Um, so if there's any content uh, that was presented here that you'd like to review, it will be available. And we uh, anticipate offering 
um, informational sessions such as this um, several more times throughout the year, um, and that information will be available on our website as well. Uh, so I believe uh, if there aren't any additional questions, that concludes uh, this meeting this afternoon, and I thank everyone for joining us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that concludes this special edition of the 2011 EMS Authors Podcast Series. Today you listened to audio recorded from a recent webinar conducted by Christy Nemerton of Jones & Bartlett Learning, along with the authors Rhonda Beck and Stephen Rahm, who described the effort that went into producing the AEMT textbook as offered by Jones & Bartlett Learning. To learn more about the AEMT textbook, please visit aemt.emszone.com. That's aemt.emszone.com. Jones & Bartlett Learning, a division of Ascend Learning, is a world-leading provider of instructional, assessment, and learning performance management solutions for the secondary, post-secondary, and professional markets. To learn more about Jones & Bartlett Learning, please visit the corporate website at www.jblearning.com.